I can say of the hundreds of cases I have investigated, I have never seen a competent police investigation. You give them these photographs, it's hard to imagine that they wouldn't have inflamed the jury or aroused the passion of the jury that we're going to get somebody for this. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window. Shortly after the decision not to grant David Dwallaby bail, Jenner and Block, a giant and high-powered law firm that was founded in 1914, took over as David's attorneys. They intended to get an appeal for David and were having four of their very best attorneys working the case pro bono, assisted by five law clerks. Attorney Bob Byman said that they often didn't take on high-profile and high-publicity cases, but said that they needed legal help and they were more than willing to do it. He alleged that there were a number of flaws in the evidence that was presented during the trial and stated that David had very substantial grounds for appeal. Among the flaws was the belief that the prosecution did not prove that David Wallaby was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and that potentially the legal instructions given early on in the case may not have been given properly. It seemed as though the general consensus was that Cynthia and David were both innocent of the murder of Jacqueline. In fact, Judge Richard Neville, who acquitted Cynthia and sentenced David to 45 years, said that he had received an abundance of letters since the trial took place, commenting that approximately 90% of the letters came from citizens who supported the couple. Bob Byman spoke to us about meeting Cynthia. The first time that I met uh, Cynthia, and this was when they were still deciding whether or not they were going to ask us to take on the case, at this point, They had used up whatever savings they had. They had used up all the equity in their home. It had to be pro bono representation. But the case was such a media uh, hot potato that there were lots of lawyers that would have been willing to do it. Uh, Certainly Hyman and and Maycheck and some of the other lawyers that were already working on the case were willing to continue it on a pro bono basis. So the issue was not can we get somebody to do it they had lots of takers to do it but who's the best person to do the appeal and so it was sort of a mutual interview I was interviewing her because I still needed to tell my executive committee why we should take the case but she was interviewing me to find out if she could believe in me and of course I wasn't going to represent her I was going to represent her husband so she's really his proxy for that but she came into my office with Anne uh, David's mother and with uh, Peggy O'Connor. So I said at some point, just as in a lull of the conversation, so Cindy, what are you doing right now? How are you supporting your family? What are you doing for income? And she said, my neighbors have been kind enough, even though they don't really need all that much babysitting. They've been letting me babysit so that I can earn a little money. And Peggy nodded and she said, yeah, we've actually worked out sort of like a a calling tree so that people know when's a good time to ask Cindy to do it. And it occurred to me like a lightning bolt when she told me that if the people that knew these people the best, who lived next door to them, were willing to trust their kids to Cynthia, then there's no way Cynthia mm-hmm. could have killed her daughter. And these people knew them. So I don't know what it did to the community in general, but to that neighborhood, it made them in one way stronger. They banded together and showed what what a great group of people they are. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little teary about this. It's a real testament to their character that everybody, everybody who knew them stood by them. Yes. As their first action of charge, Jenner and Block were granted permission by Illinois Supreme Court Justice John Stamos to file a new motion regarding David's appeal bond. The motion asked the High Court to reconsider the decision that David could not be released on bond. In mid-September, the Illinois Supreme Court refused to reconsider the decision in denying David Bond. All the while, David remained incarcerated at the Joliet Correctional Centre, 
awaiting placement in a state prison. He had been transferred from the Cook County Jail to the centralised facility in Joliet, where he would be sent to serve his sentence. The evaluation would include a psychological examination and was routine. However, a local radio station alluded that David had been suddenly moved for psychological examinations, which was not true. David and his family had hoped that he would be placed in a prison where he could work and attend college classes. Ideally, the prison would be close enough so that Cynthia and the children could routinely visit. As David was undergoing his evaluation to determine which prison suited him best, Police Chief William Fisher, FBI Special Agent Stephen Kershersky and Illinois State Police Captain Daniel McDivitt were awarded the Peace Officer Meritorious Service Award. The award was bestowed on law enforcement officers based on exceptional performance of duty, clearly above that normally expected, which has contributed materially to the success of a major project or field operation. Long and faithful service is not considered for purposes of such an award. The three were given the award because of the investigation into the murder of Jacqueline and the arrest and conviction of David. Rob Warden spoke about his experience with police investigations. Over the years, I, of course, have investigated hundreds of hundreds of cases. And I was on a panel a few years ago with the state's attorney of Lake County, that's the county north of Chicago. And I said, you know, I've never seen, there's, I've never seen a competent police investigation. And he said, Oh, you don't really mean that. What you really mean is you haven't seen a, a, a perfect police investigation. And I thought about it for a second and responded, no, uh, I realize that, that my sample may not reflect the universe, but I can say of the hundreds of cases I have investigated, I have never seen a competent police investigation. Shortly after, David would be sent to the Statesville Correctional Centre near Joliet. The prison is one of the very few that have a panopticon design. This design consists of a rotunda with a guarded perch in the centre. The purpose is for the prison guard to be able to keep watch of all the inmates. David realised he would be in prison for some time and reluctantly gave up his earlier promise that he wouldn't step foot outside until he was truly free. He was permitted 12 hours of contact visits a month and in the beginning, Cynthia, Davy, and Carly came to see him weekly. Soon after, the couple decided the children were better off not visiting the prison. It wasn't the right environment for them, so David began writing the bedtime stories instead. While Bob Byman was putting together his research for the appeal, David Protest and his journalism students began looking for similar cases throughout the country. Initially, it seemed inconceivable that a child could be snatched from their bedroom in the middle of the night when everyone else was asleep, but it was actually more common than people would like to believe. Protests and his students discovered that there had been dozens of children around Jacqueline's age abducted by strangers from their beds. On the 31st of October 1990, David's attorneys filed a motion seeking to have his murder conviction thrown out based on new evidence. In August, an inmate in Cook County Jail named Gerald Bowman alleged that he overheard a conversation between Perry Hernandez and a Hispanic gang in Cook County Jail Yard back in February 1990. Here's what Bowman said at the time. I knew he didn't do it. That David Duwalaby didn't do it. Right, Lefty was asking Perry Hernandez if he had done what they were accusing him about Cynthia Duwalaby. And um, he had said that he had broken into the window, you know, he broke the window and uh, he was making too much noise, so he went around the house and got in through an open door. Bowman also alleged that he had heard Hernandez mention Cynthia by name during the conversation. Channel 5's Paul Hogan interviewed Bowman and uncovered a lot of the information in a series of investigative reports. If what prisoner Gerald Bauman told reporters and lawyers is true, David Duwalaby didn't kill his daughter Jacqueline, a convicted child molester did. But now, Bauman won't sign a sworn statement about his story, fearing he'll be killed if he does. The Cook County State's Attorney refuted the statement as a ploy for Bauman to get more lenient sentencing. According to Assistant State Attorney George Velchik, there was no merit in Bauman's claims, and he said that there were inconsistencies in his story. After filing the petition, Bauman then refused, out of fear of personal safety, to sign the affidavit claiming that since the announcement of his potential new evidence broke, 
he'd received a number of threats. He said that he would still be willing to testify in court and according to Byman, he hadn't wavered on the testimony that he had given. Judge Neville ordered a hearing to determine Bowman's credibility because of the seriousness of the charges, but only if Bowman would agree to testify. During the hearing, Bowman testified that he had been in the outdoor exercise area at Cook County Jail at some point in the week before his 20th birthday on the 19th of February. He said he overheard Hernandez implicating himself in the murder. After hearing the testimony, Judge Neville refused to order a new trial. He stated that the Cook County Jail records showed that the section of the jail where Bowman was housed didn't exercise outdoors that week. Here's what Prosecutor Pat O'Brien had to say at the time. He didn't realise it, but the date that he picked, February 15th of 1990, where he placed this particular conversation, uh, unknown to him there were records kept by the jail which uh, detail when yard activity is uh, permitted by inmates. And the jail record showed that on the 15th of February of 1990, yard was cancelled. So obviously it could not have occurred. David's defence team had argued that Bowman wasn't sure of the exact date and said that the incident could have very well taken place the week after his birthday. On the 19th of February, Bowman's division did exercise outdoors. In a rebuttal, they had attempted to call David to testify, but were thwarted by prosecutors who protested about the limits of his testimony. Ultimately, Judge Neville refused to let David testify, citing that his testimony would have been considered new evidence. They had called on Bowman's sister and cousin to take the stand, both of whom said that he had shared the story with them during their visits. Here's what Bob Byman said about the Bowman hearing. Our theory, of course, during the Bowman hearing was that Perry Hernandez actually was the intruder and may have committed the crime. And the state made a great deal of the fact, well, there was an undisturbed layer of dust on this window. So that couldn't have been the way somebody got in. And therefore, the Duallabies must have been lying about the whole thing and probably broke the window themselves to fabricate evidence. At the trial, it's really up to the judge whether or not that amounts to credible enough and not prejudicial enough evidence to come in. On appeal, it's a deferential standard. The standard is not, judge, how would you have ruled if this was presented to you for the first time? It's unless the judge was completely wacky and out of his mind, you have to sustain that because the judge is given great discretion. So it's a lower standard. and. That's what was argued by the state. Luckily for David and me, uh, that wasn't enough. On the same day Byman filed a motion to overturn the verdict, he also filed a 74-page appellate brief to seek the outright exoneration of David based on insufficient evidence. Many were confident that Bob Byman could secure the verdict, but Cynthia had been let down too much to risk putting her faith in the justice system again. Attorney Byman said at the time, This is not a setback to the appeal. The appeal moves forward and we think when it's heard, we will be vindicated. While David and his attorneys were working around the clock to secure an appeal, Cynthia was working around the clock to win back full custody of their children. She had been left destitute by the legal battles. Having sold their home to pay their lawyers, she was now sleeping on her mother's couch. They had already paid attorneys Mechik and Hyman upwards of $50,000, but Hyman wanted more. Cynthia couldn't pay the money and Hyman threatened to sue. Bob Byman decided he would represent Cynthia in the suit pro bono and after a phone call to Hyman threatening to disclose his unethical bill, the suit was dropped. I think it was a mixture of greed and frustrated ambition because he wanted to continue to represent them and get the publicity. But he knew in his hearts of hearts that that it was a stupid lawsuit and it ended with me just picking up the phone and saying, Larry, if you don't dismiss this lawsuit within two days, we're going to countersuit. And it was dismissed within two days. The Freedom Committee were still dedicated to securing David's freedom and finding Jacqueline's killer. When Cynthia spoke after the Bowman hearing about the Freedom Committee's tip line, Prosecutor Pat O'Brien made the following statement to the media. 1-800-328-DAVE. Um, we, are, we still believe that someone will come forward with the information that we need. My reaction is, will she call it herself and finally confess to this crime? Cynthia was disappointed but not willing to give up. Here's what she said at the time. 
We have suffered many great losses in this courtroom over the past two years, but we still believe strongly in the system and that David will be vindicated. Someone else called their tip line to inform them that there was a man who looked just like David, who lived and worked at the Islander Apartments where Jacqueline's body was found, and where David was apparently identified by his nose. David Protest went to investigate, along with Rob Warden. Warden had a keen interest in wrongful convictions, having edited and published The Chicago Lawyer, a publication that exposed wrongful convictions monthly. He had been following the case through the media and wanted to learn more. Here's what Rob said. Uh, you know, I think I had just, you know, basically read about it uh, in, in the newspapers and uh, my colleague David Protus uh, uh, actually uh, covered the trial, sent students to cover the trial. They became convinced that it was, uh, that, that David uh, was innocent uh, as well as Cynthia. And, uh, and David... Uh, you know, reached out to me because I'd done work on these kinds of cases before, and I uh, 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 and he and I had worked together on other um, uh, matters in the past. And he persuaded me that this was a uh, 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 was a good case that we should look into, and we did. When they got to the Islander Apartments, the caller told them that David's lookalike was a man named Roy Pajecki. Roy lived in the building close to the dumpster where Jackman's body had been found. He also drove a light-coloured, mid-sized car. The caller thought it may have been a Pontiac, or a Chevy. After obtaining Roy's mugshot from a marijuana charge a month after Jacqueline had been murdered, Protest and Warden planned to show it to Everett Mann. Christmas was spent without Jacqueline again, but this year Cynthia didn't have David either, and Davy was still not in her custody. Not having David home for, for the holidays is very hard, but our greatest loss this Christmas is not having Jacqueline with us. The new year brought a positive new update when Cook County prosecutors dropped charges pending in juvenile court accusing Cynthia of abusing Davy. According to Cynthia's attorney, the state knew that they could improve the abuse allegations, so decided to dismiss them as opposed to lose. This was a step in the right direction for Cynthia in regaining custody. Judge Robert Smearshack set a custody hearing for early March. During the hearing, Cynthia's attorney accused the state's attorney's office of pursuing a personal vendetta, against Cynthia. Dr. Reed Schwartz, a criminal psychologist, testified that there was absolutely no indication that Davy had been physically or sexually abused, adding that abused children are often extremely aggressively hostile, angry kids. But he never saw any of that temperament in Davy, and he had been seeing him once a week over the past two years. In fact, he said that Davy had severe problems in the past but it completely changed due to the loving influence of Cynthia. He described how Davy had nightmares of being kidnapped, but since being back with Cynthia, those nightmares had stopped. Two social workers also testified that Cynthia should be granted custody. Charlotte Wenzel, who was a social worker in Hefzibah Children's Foundation in Oak Park, said that she had found absolutely no evidence of child abuse, either physical or sexual, when Davy was admitted to the hospital in November of 1988. Barbara White, who was a social worker in Children's Memorial Hospital's protective unit for abused children, testified that Davy would be safe in Cynthia's care. She had reached this conclusion based on evaluations of Cynthia's parental abilities and said that Cynthia was a very warm, loving mother with a lot of genuine concern. She went on to describe how Cynthia's eyes lit up when her children were mentioned, and that her effect was very genuine and very expressive. Cynthia herself testified on her own behalf. Emotion came over Cynthia's face as she said she would provide a loving and caring atmosphere for both of her children. She described Davy and Carly as her strength. While Cynthia was living in the same house as her children, she was barred by court order from spending any time with them alone. 
She testified that while she fully cooperated with that court edict, she still craved to be able to act spontaneously with Davy and Carly. I feel my children should have the same freedom as other children have to be with their parents at any moment. And if you feel like picking up and going someplace, you just do it, she said. On the 11th of March, Cynthia was described by the judge as a fit, willing and capable parent before granting her full custody of Davy and Carly. Judge Robert Smearshack rejected the prosecution's claims of abuse and declared that it was now time for the family to begin to heal itself in earnest. He also stated that he believed that Mount Sinai specialists had presumed that there was an abused child and were looking for evidence to support that assumption, when no evidence was actually there. As the verdict was announced, Cynthia began to weep and embraced her attorneys. Seizing a rare opportunity, Bob Byman asked the judge if the Dwallabies could be permitted to embrace. The judge replied, motion to hug granted. I think the state was totally vindictive about it. Uh, it, I, I can't blame the state or the prosecutors for this, but I can blame the system as part of it. They took Davy on the day that they arrested David and Cynthia. They took Davy to uh, Rush St. Luke's Hospital, where there was a woman named Sharon Ahern that ran a for-profit center in this not-for-profit hospital. In other words, she had to turn a profit in her center in order for her job and her unit to, to be sustained. And it was a child abuse center. The whole purpose of this center was to find and treat cases of child abuse. And so she's brought in, the cops saying, this is the little boy whose parents killed his sister. We want you to examine him. And she filled out a chart in which she detailed, and I'll get the exact number wrong, but it was something between 15 and 25 individual abrasions and signs of trauma, and detailed them on a medical chart and said, here's a bruise, there's a bruise, here's a scrape, there's a scrape, here's something that looks like it could be a healed uh, fracture. Uh, Put them all on a chart, on black and white, on a piece of paper. Unbeknownst to her, before they had dropped Davy off with her, a police photographer had taken pictures of Davy sitting just in his U-trout and showed nothing but unbroken skin. He had two little tiny marks on him, the kind that any four-year-old boy would have just from walking around his own home. The photographs just totally blew out of the water, this woman's so-called finding. And she left the state rather than testify at the juvenile trial. So the whole idea that there was proof of abuse uh, was ludicrous. Now, to give the, the state its due, the way the laws are written, the mere fact that a sibling has been injured, or in this case, murdered, in the household is a sufficient ground to bring a juvenile proceeding because a presumption arises that the parents weren't able to protect the sibling and therefore maybe can't protect uh, the other children in the household. So the fact that a proceeding is brought wasn't all that unusual, but the vitriol with which the state brought it was personal. Outside of court, Cynthia said that the family were now one step closer in ending the nightmare they had been living in for the past two years. Cynthia had understandably been consumed with the stress of the custody battle, but now it was time for the family to start healing and focus on mounting a vigorous campaign to clear David's name and get him out of prison. After tracking down the one-star witness for the prosecution, Everett Mann, Protest warden and Hogan showed him Roy Padecki's mugshot. Everett conceded that it was very possible that this was who he saw on that dark night two years earlier. He also said that all he saw was a nose, and if Roy, or even the prosecutor Pat O'Brien, had their photographs in the lineup he was shown, he would not have identified David Dwallaby. Uh, at some point, actually. My co-author, uh, my colleague David Previs, uh, professor of journalism at Northwestern, and I tracked down this witness, this this nose witness, a man named Everett Mann. 
And uh, when we talked to Everett Mann and we showed him, we showed him other photographs. Uh, he actually told us, "Hey, gee, if, if they'd shown me the photograph of the prosecutor, a guy named Pat O'Brien, who had a rather prominent nose, I would have identified him instead of David Dalabi." And we took that to, to Channel Five and got it on television. So it basically precluded any chance that they'd ever be able to uh, that this witness would be any good at a retrial, and that David could never be reconvicted. Uh, based on his testimony after that, but in fact, when he said, "If I if, if I'd seen this photograph, I would have identified him," we knew, of course, that he hadn't seen anything. That he couldn't have seen anything from the distance um, uh, he described, and the police knew that uh, from the very beginning, and the prosecutors knew it, and yet they proceeded with the case and made that guy their star witness. Uh, it, it, it's just an absolute disgrace. Paul Hogan ran a story discrediting Everett as a witness, saying, The testimony of Everett Mann was the only significant difference that led a judge to declare Cynthia DeWallaby not guilty and allow a jury to find her husband guilty. Tonight, that crucial piece of the state's largest circumstantial case is gone. Among those who watched the report were the appellate judges who would make the final decision on David DeWallaby's appeal and it confirmed what they had read in Bob Byman's briefs, that Everett's testimony had never been credible. On June 10, 1991, three months after Cynthia was granted full custody of the couple's children, Byman asked the Illinois Appellate Court to reverse the guilty verdict. He expressed the belief that the evidence presented failed to show that David was the killer and accused the judge of unfairly excluding information of the attempted abduction that took place just 24 hours before Jacqueline's abduction. Additionally, he argued that the jury was prejudiced by the graphic crime scene photographs of Jacqueline, as well as the shocking autopsy photographs that were entered as evidence. A typical U.S. appellate argument is time-limited. Ordinarily, each side will get something like 15 or 20 minutes, maybe as much as 30 minutes. But time limits are strictly enforced in most courts. In our Supreme Court, for example, uh, when the light goes on at yellow, you know you have 30 seconds. And when it goes on at red, you stop. Uh, Maybe you finish your sentence if you have a very nice chief justice. But some chief justices wouldn't even let you finish a sentence when the, the light goes red. Most appellate courts are maybe not quite that strict, but they're close. But on this argument, when we got up, uh, Judge Serta started off when we introduced ourselves and said, how much time do you need? And I said, well, Your Honor, uh, we think we can handle this argument in 30 minutes. And Serta just said, well, take whatever amount of time you want, uh, which I had never heard before or since from an appellate court. It's also the only time in the Illinois Appellate Court, I think, ever. Uh, I know it, it was the first time ever then, but I don't think it's happened since then. The television cameras were allowed in the court. And the argument ended up lasting about two and a half hours. And luckily for me, I don't think I had to talk much more than 30 or 40 minutes of that. Most of it was the state's attorney fending off uh, the various assaults from the the justices asking why such and such a thing was allowed, such as why were these pictures allowed. There was such interest in the appellate arguments that it had to be moved to a larger courtroom and broadcast on television for the first time ever. Here are some of the proceedings from Bob Byman's argument. Your Honours, David Duwalaby did not kill his daughter. He does not know who did. Neither David Duwalaby nor Cynthia Duwalaby had a hand in the death of their daughter. And what is most important this morning, the state did not prove that they did. David Duwalaby's only crime was that he slept while whatever events unfolded which took his daughter out of his home the evening of September 9, 1988, or the early morning hours of Saturday, September 10, 1988. Very simply, on September 9, Jacqueline Duwalaby was alive. She was a living, lovely little girl. On September 10, sometime in the morning, she was discovered missing. At exactly 10.46, because there are phone records to show it, David Duwalaby phoned the Midlothian Police Department to tell them that he had discovered a broken window and his daughter was missing. 
The first officer arrived on the scene uh, 20 or 25 minutes later, conducted the first investigation. Within hours, dozens of police officers joined the investigation. The investigation, searching for some leads into what had happened to Jacqueline DeWallaby, continued until September 14th. On September 14th at approximately 5.30, a body was discovered in a wooded area near the apartment complex known as the Islander Apartments in Blue Island. That body was identified as Jacqueline's body. At that point... How far from, from the home was the body found? Where, where the body, the body was, was found in the was suburb of Blue Island. The Dwallabies lived in Midlothian. It's approximately three miles away, Your Honor. Okay. The, the body having been found, the police effort had already focused on the Dwallabies. As early as September 13th, the full day before Jacqueline had been discovered dead, Mr. Dwallaby was read his Miranda rights. He had given blood, urine, and fingerprint samples. He was investigated as a suspect. From September 14th on, the only viable suspect that the police had was the Dwallabies. Two months later, the day before Thanksgiving, on I believe it was November 22nd, 1988, the Dwallabies were arrested and charged with the murder of their daughter. The indictment was returned eight days later uh, from the grand jury on November 30th. The Dwallabies eventually stood trial in May and June of last year. At the conclusion of the evidence, Cynthia Dwallaby received a directed verdict from Judge Neville. David Dewallaby's case was sent to the jury where he was convicted both of murder and of concealment, receiving 40 years for murder and five years for concealment. If I could get back to that interval of time, that mysterious period of time in which we don't know what happened and why Jacqueline Dewallaby was missing from the home, of those four facts, the first was the fairly innocuous dog's barking. The second was the testimony of Everett Mann who at 2 o'clock in the morning was pulling into his parking place at the Islander Apartments where Jacqueline's body was eventually found. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, from a distance of 75 yards away, Mr. Mann saw a car, which he described as a dark, late-model, mid-sized car. He also saw a person in the car whom he was only able to describe as a person with a large, prominent nose structure. The third fact was that at precisely the same moment that Mr. Mann saw a car and a nose, Holly Deck, the Dewallaby's neighbors, saw the Dewallaby's car, Cynthia Dewallaby's car, parked in front of her house. She noticed the car because it was overlapping the driveway, somewhat unusually. There had been a party earlier that evening, a Tupperware party, and there were other cars parked in the neighborhood, and Cindy was unable to park where she usually did. And the fourth fact, the only other fact that we know about that intervening period of time, was that someone broke a window in the Dewallaby's home. Wasn't there, there was some, some testimony about the cobwebs and some dust? And there stuff was testimony like about cobwebs and dust. The, the testimony about cobwebs was, well, first let me deal with the dust, because that's by two officers. Officer Wooder, the first officer on the scene, says that he saw a thin layer of undisturbed dust on the sill. Officer Baldwin says the same thing. Interestingly, Officer Wooder, when he does his initial investigation report, five places in his report says method of entry broken window and nowhere mentions undisturbed layer of dust. Officer Baldwin, who is a state police evidence technician who has an electrostatic dust lifter and evidence tape and photographic equipment, never photographs the dust or the cobwebs. Putting all of that aside, in this record, uh, because of a supplemental proceeding we had in the trial court, we have the statement of somebody who heard Perry Hernandez admit to breaking this window and then walking around and going in through a door because he was making too much noise. So whether or not somebody came through the window is not the issue. The issue is that the window was broken. There would have been evidence if the judge had granted our motion for a new trial or if we now had that evidence for a new trial on remand that the very Perry Hernandez that we think is the perpetrator has made an admission that he was the perpetrator and that he broke the window but didn't use it for egress or entry. Assistant State's Attorney David Cuomo argued that the case against David was built on evidence that he claimed excluded anybody else as the possible killer of Jacqueline. However, he did acknowledge that there was no smoking gun in the case, but still stood by the eyewitness testimony despite the fact it had been severely discredited during the trial. He questioned, the issue in all of these cases is who had control of the child. According to attorney Cuomo, one of the strongest pieces of evidence was that David had contradicted himself. 
about the last encounter he had with Jacqueline on the night she vanished. Initially, David said he had tucked her into bed, but later he testified that he hadn't entered Jacqueline's bedroom that night, because Jacqueline had been preparing a present for him. He also said that David had apparently told a neighbour that it was getting easier to cope, just days after Jacqueline went missing. We spoke with Bob Byman and he broke down the prosecution's case for us. Well, I mean, same tried and true arguments that prosecutors always use, which is the jury has, has acted, the jury is entitled to great discretion, the, the record is sufficient, and I, I don't remember them having any startlingly good arguments. They basically just said, no, there was sufficient evidence because man's testimony. I mean, th- their main hooks were there was man's testimony. There were statements David made that supposedly were admissions of guilt. Uh, and the outrageousness of that is that these statements were things like a neighbor would come up to him and say, uh, how's it going, David? And he said, well, it was hard at first, but it's getting better every day. And that supposedly was an admission of guilt because things were getting better already and they shouldn't be getting better when your daughter has only been gone for a week or two. Uh, Or there was supposedly the statement David made when he was being interrogated by the police for hours on end, when he supposedly said, you mean the accident, referring to Jacqueline's death, saying, aha, He's admitting that there was some sort of accident and he was culpable in her murder. David denies that he even used the word accident. He said he used the word incident. But whatever he said, how you can twist that into an admission of guilt, uh, and yet that's what prosecutors do. So on the appeal, uh, they argued there were these admissions of guilt. There were these unexplained uh, gaps in their, their story or inconsistencies in their story. There was Everett Mann saying that he saw the nose that looked like him. Uh, supposedly, the the broken window was an admission of guilt because somebody must have broken it, and yet it couldn't have been an intruder because there was dust on the sill. Well, that was disputed evidence. It was announced that the first district Illinois appellate court would be expected to decide the fate of David after hearing the arguments of both the state and the defence. Justices closely questioned both sides in a hearing. Under appellate court rules, both the state and the defence were given 20 minutes to present their arguments on the case, and then another 10 minutes to rebut the opposition. David's attorneys argued at least 10 issues before the court, and the four major points that they raised were The jury had used insufficient evidence to convict David. Judge Neville had issued illegally inconsistent instructions to the jury after finding Cynthia not guilty. The state's star witness, Everett Mann, had been diagnosed with manic depression, and his symptoms included exaggeration and even seeing things that did not exist. The state's use of gruesome photographs to inflame the jury. But there was not a single reason why they had to come in. Dr. Stein testified to every single fact that he had in his armament of information. And then he went back, not because he needed the photographs to illustrate a point, but merely because the photographs amplified and inflamed the very points he made. Justices Griman and Rizzi asked Cuomo to justify showing the jury 17 photographs of Jacqueline's decomposing body. Here is that exchange. Let's ask you, does it, do these proof identify the victim? Is there any question of the identity of this victim? No. There's Is not. there any proof of corpus delecta that you need these pictures for? Yeah, I believe there was an issue as to that, yes. And I'll tell you what it is. I believe that it was, and it, the defendants disputed the cause of death at trial. They cross-examined Dr. Well, these don't Stein. show you the cause of death, do they? Well, They're just gruesome pictures. They don't show anybody. In, in that they exclude certain elements that alternative causes of death, yes, they do. They tend to well, show... Let me ask you, do they show the extent of the injury or the condition of the body? They don't show you that, do they? They, they show the extent of the decomposition. Well, I understand, but that has nothing to do... Any, if you put anybody, someone who, who died of any cause, out in a field, 
they're going to decompose and they're probably going to be have infestation by by uh, some kind of animals, right? You know. Yes, sir. And nothing to do with 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 the uh, the crime that is alleged, right? But yes, it does because the defendants disputed the timing of her death. They created this picture that she could have been taken from the house by an intruder. Seventeen somehow. pictures, seventeen pictures. None of that has anything to do with what you're saying. None of this. This this picture doesn't have anything to do with that, does it? I. Yes, it does. I believe that every single... It tells you whether she was, t was she bound and gagged? I, inferentially, it or does. Or the time of death? Or, right. Yes, it does. Does it illustrate the character of the weapon that might have been used, or the means of the manner used? They don't show that, do they? Yes, it does. It does in the sense that it excludes, for instance, a gunshot wound. It does in the sense that it excludes, for instance, a knife as best as we no, can. No, no, no. You, you, you can look at these pictures all day long, and you can't tell whether, whether there's a gunshot wound. Well, this is barely, this, this, these pictures barely show a human being, counsel. You cannot tell whether, I can, I've looked at these pictures, you cannot tell whether they're, whether this was a hatchet murder or not, frankly, by looking at these pictures. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I think does I'm, it show, uh, does it shed light on motive? No. Shed light on intent? Y yes, it does, in the sense that her body was, uh, sort of concealed behind some bushes and trees and undergrowth or what have you, it, the fact that she was hidden there would relate that the murderer did not want it to be known that he had done this, which... Well, that might be true. That might be true as far as the, the one picture where she's wrapped in, in a blanket and put there. But these other things, physical nature, some of them taken in a morgue. That wouldn't show where, where it was, would it? No, but again, it would show... Do they determine the atrociousness of the act? No, no. it does not. No, so the fact I, is, they have no probative value. I mean, you can. The, the fact is, they simply don't have any probative value. I don't believe that. I believe that Judge Neville found that they have probative value on the issues I've been discussing. And the that's time, the, the that's time what we're trying to determine is whether or not his ruling was correct. And I'm just suggesting to you, I just don't see what probative value they could possibly have had. They have probative value in the time of her death, which the defendants disputed. They have probative Dr. value... Dr. Stein testified to all of this. Let me ask you another question. Assuming that they do have probative value, mm -hmm. I can't imagine that they do, but suppose that they do, and uh, when we deliberate on the case, I, I'm not making a commitment now as to making any ruling one way or the other, but let's assume they did have probative value. Why do they go to the jury room? Even if they are admissible in the evidence, that doesn't mean they go to the jury room. It was up to Judge Neville to weigh the probative value against the prejudicial effect, and I think in this case... Right, that's for the admissibility of the, of the photographs, it, but let me ask you something else. Mm -hmm. Having seen them in evidence, having heard Dr. Stein testified, they also saw a slide in evidence. Right. A slide of some of this stuff. Yes, they did. Now, why does that have to go to the jury room when the jury deliberates? Don't you think that that's inflaming the jury? The slides did not go. No, but they saw the slides right. during the trial of these of this this type of photography. Weren't they slides of this? Yes. Of these photographs uh, or similar type photographs? Yes, some of them. Some of them right. are also seen. And they saw all of that during the trial. Now, just when the jury goes back and deliberates, you give them these photographs. It's hard to imagine that they wouldn't have inflamed the jury or aroused the passion of the jury that we're going to get somebody for this. Once both sides had made their arguments, it would take the appellate court anywhere from a week to six months to decide David's fate. One of David's attorneys working with Jenner and Block, Terry Truax, said that it was difficult to ascertain when the three-judge panel would hand down their decision. However, he said that he was confident that Justices Dom Rizzi Alan Greenman and David Serda were interested in the case and what they had presented. They had three options, to affirm the conviction, to grant a new trial, or to reverse the conviction outright. The decision would take months to be made public, and so David spent another summer in prison. David turned seven. He offered his birthday money to his dad, who had his belongings stolen during a prison riot. Most of the Dwallaby supporters believed that the decision would be to grant a new trial. And so Protas and Warden undertook the task of dismantling the prosecution's case piece by piece in the public eye. If there was a retrial, the circumstantial evidence would not hold the weight it originally had. 
Joe Cosman spoke about how he felt the media flipped from targeting the Dwallabies to targeting the police. You know, at first, yeah, I think they were, they really were going after the parents. And then after the convictions, now all of a sudden they switched where they were going after law enforcement. But, you know, the media is going to do what the media is going to do. In law enforcement, you just have to ignore it and just do what's right and do your job. I'm not sure I buy into there was media bias. We, we had pretty good media in those days. We had pretty good people covering this thing. Uh, one of the best, and be sure and ask Dave Protest about this, but there was a guy named Paul Hogan, the main investigative reporter for the probably the premier television station. He didn't have any bias. His bias was, let's find the story. There was a guy named Phil Rogers, who was the main radio, uh, radio guy. He didn't have any media bias. He was just trying to cover the story. Uh, most of these, most of the people that I met, and I ended up dealing with almost all of the press, uh, Chicago press, during the course of this, I didn't see anybody that started with a bias one way or the other, other than for the truth. But they were lied to by the prosecutors, or they were starved, one of the two. They certainly weren't told anything exculpatory. And so they reported what they had. And the press started to turn when the press realized at the trial, uh, there's no substance here. And a few of the reporters actually said that. The statement David supposedly made about things getting easier was that he said, it was really hard at first, but it gets easier day by day. Colleen Jones Goodwin claimed that David had said this to her before Jacqueline's body had been found while he and next-door neighbour, Bob Tolbert, were boarding up the broken basement window. As it turned out, however, this conversation hadn't happened until after Jacqueline had been found. Bob Tolbert had been ready to refute the prosecution's witness claim at trial, but the defence had failed to call him as a witness. When he was arrested for Jacqueline's death and was sent to the county jail, um... People wanted to kill him. They were reaching through bars. They were screaming baby killer at him. They were calling him the most horrible names um, because the prisoners in the county jail um, had only seen the media coverage from the law enforcement point of view um, at the time of David's arrest. Well, the trial happens and um, all the evidence that was supposedly out there implicating the Wallabies turns out to be false suddenly David becomes a hero to prisoners because he's now a wrongfully convicted man. Basically, the same group of prisoners completely changed their mind based on the the flipping of the media coverage from guilty to to innocent. In another dramatic turn to what had become one of the most paradoxical and unusual murder sagas in Chicago's modern-day history, David's murder conviction received an outright reversal on the 30th of October, 1991. The Illinois Appellate Court panel unanimously overturned the murder and concealment verdict on the grounds that there was insufficient evidence against David. This was the first time in six years that the Appellate Court would declare a convicted murderer not guilty. The Appellate Court had ruled that key witness testimony was vague and unreliable. Additionally, it was ruled that prosecutors did not prove without a doubt that David was the only person who had the opportunity to murder Jacqueline. They also noted that all of the basement windows were unlocked on the night of her disappearance, giving a plethora of entry points for an intruder if the broken window was not deemed a viable entry point, like the prosecution had argued. They also questioned the validity of the circumstantial evidence that had been used to convict David, and ruled that the facts presented by the prosecution had failed to prove that David could have committed the murder. They additionally agreed that an intruder very well could have entered the home and committed the crime, either a stranger or a different family member. The appellate court panel held that Judge Neville should have handed down a verdict to David of not guilty, while Justice David Serda said that in his professional opinion, the trial evidence could not have proven beyond a reasonable doubt that David had murdered Jacqueline. In a 21-page opinion, the court ruled that Judge Neville 
should have acquitted David before the case went to the jury. They stated that opportunity alone is not sufficient to sustain a conviction, unless the state can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that no other person had the opportunity to commit the crime. They concluded their opinion by stating, Although there are many unanswered questions, we concluded that the totality of the evidence is not sufficient to prove David guilty. David's attorneys were seeking immediate release, but O'Malley said that he would be opposing the immediate release. This meant that the prosecution had 21 days to seek an appeal, or David would be granted freedom to return home to his family. As expected, O'Malley filed an appeal, opposing the release of David. He stated that the 12 jurors who served on the trial were best suited to determine who murdered Jacqueline, and argued that the three justices on the appellate court panel looked only at the cold record, while the jury heard witnesses and saw the evidence firsthand. The state attorney O'Malley announced that his main argument was that the wrong standard had been used to reverse the murder conviction. He stated that the three-justice panel had been required to hold that no rational person could have reached a conclusion of guilt after seeing prosecution evidence in its best light. He stated that a very exact standard should be used, and he felt as though it hadn't been applied in the decision to reverse the conviction. When Byman was informed that O'Malley had filed the appeal, he said that it was a long shot and suggested that he may have received some bad advice on the appeal. He rebutted that the appellate court had used the correct standard and instead put forward the suggestion that it was O'Malley who had applied the wrong standard. After O'Malley's decision to appeal was made public, David spoke with WLS-TV and said, Technically, I'm innocent. How can they keep an innocent man in jail while they argue about this? While David still remained behind bars, the decision was a monumental one. Cynthia praised the decision and was ecstatic to know that they could soon be a family once again. She placed a sign in the front window which read, It's unanimous, David is coming home. The phone at the Dwallaby household was constantly buzzing and an aura of excitement emanated in the air. Cynthia and the other members of the family wore t-shirts with David's face emblazoned on the front with the words, Stop Injustice, Free David Wallaby. Masses of reporters crammed into David's sister, Rose's home, for a news conference, wherein Cynthia said that their prayers had been answered and that they were ready to get on with being a family. David spoke to radio presenters from prison and said, My reaction is, of course, um, I couldn't be happier except maybe when I walked out of the prison, but um, I'm very happy. I'll never be able to rest until I know who actually killed my daughter. Uh, I'll never be able to rest. So if I'm out of here, maybe I could pursue that. For the locals, the decision raised the specter that a child killer could still be lurking within their community. The Dwallaby's neighbour, Mary Tolbert, said that she knew that somebody else had always been out there and she was living in fear that they would come back and target another child. Reversals by an appellate court are extremely rare. Out of more than 1,200 Cook County cases that year alone, the court had overturned cases only 11 times. Reviewing courts can often be reluctant to second-guess key decisions, and appellate panels more often cite a legal error and then order a new trial. After a number of conferences, the appellate court informed the Cook County State's Attorney's Office that they would not be ruling on the motion filed by State Attorney O'Malley. This meant that David would be kept behind bars for one more weekend. State Attorney O'Malley subsequently announced that if the appellate court decided to release David on Monday, then he would be taking his motion opposing his release to the Illinois Supreme Court. He once again reiterated that the 12 jurors knew best, stating, We have 12 jurors and a trial judge heard the witnesses and testimony and came to a different conclusion, that David Dwallaby was guilty of murder beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't believe murderers should be out in the streets of Cook County. If the Supreme Court decided not to hear O'Malley's appeal, then David would be released a free man and could not be retried. 
If the Supreme Court decided to hear O'Malley's appeal, then it could uphold the reversal, reinstate the murder conviction, or send it back to a lower court for a second trial. If O'Malley was successful in blocking David's release, then David could stay behind bars through the entire process. On the 5th of November, bond was set for David's release at $400,000 by the Illinois Appellate Court. However, after bond was set, Assistant Cook County State's Attorney, Renee Goldfarb, took the case to the Illinois Supreme Court and argued that David's release should be blocked until the full court could hear the matter. Supreme Court Justice Michael Bilandic temporarily stayed the order just as David's family and supporters were preparing to post 10% of the bond. They initially had $10,000 short of the bond, but Rob Warden and David Protest put forward the remainder out of their own pockets. This meant that David would be staying behind bars until the full court could hear both arguments. Attorney Byman argued that the prosecutors had failed to prove that David would be a flight risk or a danger to society if released, which are two guidelines to keep somebody incarcerated, while State Attorney Goldfarb argued that David had been convicted of murdering a child, and therefore did pose a danger. Ultimately, the Illinois Supreme Court turned down the motion to keep David behind bars. Pretty unusual, but this case uh, was reversed outright. Uh, in the vast majority of cases, the appellate court merely uh, finds that there was some error at the trial or something prejudicial happened, uh, and therefore the verdict uh, was unjust, and so they remand the case for a new trial. In this case, the appellate court found the evidence so lacking that it reversed the case outright. Uh, freeing David uh, without any chance of a retrial. At 9.30am on the 12th of November 1991, after serving 18 months, one week and three days in custody, a tired but triumphant David walked out of Statefield Prison a free man. He and Cynthia had a private reunion inside a guard station before stepping outside to a congregation of reporters that had gathered. David joked that he was looking forward to having a juicy steak and couldn't wait to spend some time with his two children, Davy and Carly, who had never seen her father as a free man until now. He said, At one point, I calculated how old my kids would be if I spent 40 years in prison. It was depressing. David additionally vowed to search for Jacqueline's killer and said that Jacqueline was always in the back of his mind and he wanted to visit her grave and bring her some flowers. When asked what he would say to those who still believed that he was guilty, he said, It's very hard. It's probably impossible to prove you're innocent beyond all doubt. I don't know if I can convince everyone, and I probably won't be able to. It was thanks to Bob Byman that David was free. Bob remembers that day as one of the highlights of his career. I went to a, an early fundraiser for the family, and... I did something that no lawyer would ever do without committing complete malpractice, but I promised that group that I was not only going to get the conviction overturned, that I was going to walk David out and, and get him exonerated. And I don't know why I made that stupid promise, but it, it came true, and it, it was one of the great moments of my life. I got to call David, but Cynthia had already called him, and then about a week later, there were still some hoops we had to jump through because the state took an immediate appeal to the Supreme Court and there was an emergency order to keep him incarcerated. But I finally got to be the one that processed the paperwork and walked him out of Stateville. And of course, he was immediately mobbed by the press and I just receded. But that short walk out of the door into the press scrum was one of the best trips I've ever taken. From the prison, Cynthia and David went back home where around 50 friends and family had gathered to celebrate. David cut the red and white bracelets from the Freedom Committee members' wrists. Life for the Dwallaby family had changed exponentially, but for the sake of Davy and Carly, David and Cynthia needed to adapt. David went back to work at Rack's erecting services. Their free time focused on the children and trying to get the murder case reopened. In an unrelated news conference, State Attorney O'Malley said that it was unlikely that the case would be reinvestigated, stating, He cannot be tried again, 
For this case, that's the bottom line. In February of 1992, the Illinois Supreme Court refused to review the State Appellate Court's decision to throw out David's murder conviction. The decision was a momentous one for the Dwallaby family and their supporters. From their home, Cynthia said that now, instead of focusing on the judicial system, their main focus could be on Jacqueline and what had happened to her. When the decision was made, David had been on his lunch break at Rack's Erecting Services. He said that when he first heard it on the radio, it didn't sink in. He grabbed 40 cents from his pocket and called Cynthia, but she was out at school and didn't pick up. Afterwards, he called a friend, stating that he wanted somebody he knew to tell him that what he heard on the radio was real, that he was not going back to prison. In that instant, the sensational case became both an unsolved murder and a wrongful conviction. Linda Wisniewski, the juror who recanted and said that she wished she had prevented the jury's unanimous guilty verdict, was told the news by David Protas. Here's what he remembers. Do you know something? Um, after the appellate court verdict came down, uh, overturning the jury's verdict and setting David free, the first call I made after I left the courthouse was to Linda Wisniewski uh, to let her know that what she had uh, done was not in vain in, in speaking out and that David was going to go free. And um, uh, it was a very happy voice on the other end of the phone. Later that month, the Freedom Committee held a party for the Dwallabies and their supporters. When David was released from prison the previous November, protests had applauded the collective efforts of those involved. He said, It's remarkable that lawyers, journalists and everyday people came together to make this day possible. You represent the best of America. You stood up to be counted when somebody needed you. That collection of people came together to celebrate David being a free man. Paul Hogan had been given the title of Best Reporter by the Associated Press for his coverage of the Dwallaby case. Daniel Franks, the young attorney who worked alongside Mechick and Hyman as David and Cynthia's legal representation in the original trial, was told by David that he believed he never would have been convicted if he had let Franks take over for Mechick in the beginning. This is what protests said about the people who came together. The success we had here, uh, David being free, the family being reunited... Um, them moving on with their lives was a <clears throat> was really a group effort. It was a team collaboration uh, that involved um, not only me but Rob Warden, who was my um, mentor and editor at Chicago Lawyer Magazine, uh, by a couple of my students um, at Northwestern University. Um, this ended up being a model for my continuing to use students in investigative uh, stories for doing a lot of the background research. Um, and, and most importantly, a, a guy who doesn't get nearly enough credit, Bob Byman, uh, the lawyer who wrote this extraordinary brief that persuaded the, the Illinois appellate court to do something that appellate courts almost never do, uh, uh, to uh, outright reverse a case and exonerate the prisoner. And most of the time, if there's a wrongful conviction, they'll, they'll do what's called remand the case to the um, trial court for a hearing to determine actual innocence. They basically said that this case is ridiculous and David should be freed. And, uh, you know, that took some courage too. I think the three appellate justices uh, are, are part of ultimately the team. Um, and, but, but it was Byman who persuaded them. Uh, and then there were the, the people in the neighborhood, um, in the Dwalabies community, who stood up to be counted when somebody needed them. Um, they didn't have to. They were putting themselves at risk with the police, but they, but they spoke out on, on David and Cynthia's behalf. So, I mean, I'm not denying I played a role in the case, um, but, but I, I really think that where credit is due, it's, it's, it's to this odd um, sort of conglomeration of people who came here to make uh, a difference in the lives of two innocent people. Bob Byman wasn't in attendance, but said that the day David walked out of prison, his own three sons had jumped into his arms and told him how proud they were. That was worth more than any fee. It was thanks to one of Bob's sons that we have a lot of the audio from the appellate trial. He had recorded his dad. 
The Illinois Supreme Court decision led to a heated debate between O'Malley and the Appellate Court Justice Dom Rizzi, who had sat on the three-judge panel that had reversed the conviction. Appellate Court Justice Dom Rizzi said that the case should have never been prosecuted in the first place and that it had been a complete waste of taxpayers' money. While the Dwallaby supporters were elated at the news of David's release, the members of the task force who had secured their arrests were disappointed. Joe Cosman spoke about this. Yeah, we were disappointed. Uh, some guys got angry. Uh, you know, my, my view's always been, if you believe in the system, you have to believe in it even when it goes against you. You can't just take the good stuff and say, this is it and everything else is wrong. You know, uh, there were some that argued that it gotten it had gotten political when it was reversed, but you know, the, the court did what they did, and you know, that's what can you do? You know, a lot of us were not happy when uh, Judge Neville uh, dismissed the case against Cynthia. You know, we thought that should have been allowed to go to the jury. We think we thought we probably would have got a guilty on that, but she was a very pretty lady. She cried a lot, you know, this is her child, and, you know, she had some sympathy. And I think that's why he cut her loose. The decision meant that David could never be tried for Jacqueline's murder again. But Jacqueline's killer had still not been found. Yet. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Shattered Window. The Shattered Window is a completely independent podcast paid for out of our own pockets. If you'd like to support the show in return for loads of bonus content, behind the scenes, merch and more, then please check out The Shattered Window on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Also, make sure you visit us at theshatteredwindow.com for more information about this episode and follow us on social media to keep up to date with the case and any developments. If you enjoy The Shattered Window, it would mean the world if you'd left us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to support a show that you enjoy and can help us reach new listeners. Once again, thank you for listening, and until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe, and have an amazing week.